I'm Dr. Magania. Remember, I'm your emergency department doctor. Right now, you are being placed on a psychiatric hold because it is our professional opinion that as a result of a mental health disorder, you are likely to harm yourself. We believe that this is true because of what you told your school counselor. So for two years, over two years, I've been feeling suicidal. I haven't brought it up before because I didn't want my parents to know. Uh, I just turned 18, so I decided to finally go to a counselor. I met with him twice, and the second time he thought that I was high risk for suicide, and he decided to call the campus police and send me to the hospital. You will be held for a period of up to 72 hours. During those 72 hours, you may be transferred to another facility. You may request to be evaluated or treated at a facility of your choice. You may request to be evaluated or treated by a mental health professional of your choice. We cannot guarantee the facility or mental health professional you choose will be available, but we will honor the choice if we can. During these I realized I didn't really have much of a choice in the situation, so I just kind of went with it. Um, I really didn't want to go. I have classes today that I'm missing, and I'm going to be missing, and like really hard ones that I really don't want to miss. kind of felt like someone else was making decisions for me. I would have liked to have more of a choice in the matter and kind of have it discussed with me. I feel like even if we discussed it more, like, on the level of me making the decisions, then even if I ended up here, I would have felt better about it because I would have had more of a choice. During these 72 hours, you will be evaluated by the facility staff and you may be given treatments, including medications. It is possible for you to be released before the end of the 72 hours, but if the they staff- took away my stuff, including my phone, um, and then they had me change into this weird papery outfit. <laughs> it feels humiliating, actually, <laughs> because it's just, it doesn't fit well, it doesn't feel comfortable or anything like that. But if the staff decides that you need continued treatment, you can be held for a longer time period. I waited like forever to get finally get food and then someone came in to talk to me about what I was feeling and how I was feeling and stuff like that. And then after they left, I went to bed. And when I woke up this morning, the same thing happened again. Um, a nurse came in. She, she said she was checking my vitals, like my blood pressure and all that stuff. And then another person came in and asked me how I was feeling and asked me like a million different questions on like... My thoughts, my plan, did I have like a safety plan for if I were to be released or anything like that, the medications I was on and things like that. If you are held longer than 72 hours, you have the right to a lawyer and a qualified interpreter and a hearing before a judge. If you are unable to pay for the lawyer, then one will be provided for you free of charge. If you have any questions about your legal rights, you may contact the county patient's right advocate at 916 333 3800. Your 72 hour. Um, I wasn't really told a plan when I got here. They had me sign a couple papers, and the one lady said something that kind of stood out to me. She said, Your rights will be temporarily taken away from you. And I was like, That's fun. Your 72 hour period begins now. This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana in crisis. 
Welcome back to Impulse. What you heard was one of the patients in our emergency department's story interspersed with a suggested script for placing a patient on a psychiatric hold. Today, we're going to be talking about the mental health crisis that has swept across the U.S. Now, if you work in the emergency department, the hospital, watch the news, or even walk the streets, you have seen its effects. You know, I remember in residency, it seems like this wasn't such a problem. Um, and maybe it's my bias, but I don't remember seeing quite as many mental health patients as I do now. Yeah, I, my experience is very much the same. I remember my ED rotations uh, during residency and either would be like, what, maybe one or two psychiatric patients in a month. And my attendings would be like, oh, my God, it's so bad. And I'm like, I would long for those days. <laughs> so before we get into it, let's define a few terms. Yes, in California, we refer to the psychiatric hold as a 5150. That actually references the code number assigned to the actual law in California. And this is when a person is deemed a danger to themselves, others, or is unable to care for themselves because of a mental health disorder. That person is unable to leave the facility that they are at until they are safe, which is typically up to 72 hours. And the goal is assessment, evaluation, and crisis intervention, or transfer to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation and treatment. You know, it sounds extreme when you put it in those terms, and certainly the patient we interviewed felt like it was extreme. She used words like loss of control, waiting for food, strange, rights taken away, and didn't expect this. But this is necessary at times. Mental health crisis is a serious life-threatening condition. You know, Sarah, just talking about this brings my heart rate up, increases my concentration. Yep, I think my pupils are dilated a little. <laughs> so to help with my own mental health, I spoke with one of our favorite psychiatrists, Dr. Lauren Schur. Lauren is an associate professor of psychiatry at UC Davis, and he's also the director of emergency psychiatry and the director of integrated behavioral health services in our primary care network. He's part of a team of psychiatrists who see patients in the ED and work closely with our ED physicians. And he recently wrote an article in our local paper, The Sacramento Bee, about the mental health crisis in lay language, and it really was the inspiration for this podcast episode. We wanted to hear about the mental health crisis from his perspective. I've been at UC Davis for 10 years now, working side-by-side -side emergency physicians and in the emergency department. And... For a number of years now, we have had um, a growing crisis of uh, patients with psychiatric emergencies, uh, you can call it a mental health emergency, presenting to emergency departments, and not just at UC Davis, but across our whole region in crisis. And our system, our mental health system, is not big enough to respond to the need. Psychiatric illnesses are common. Major depression, anxiety disorders, trauma-related illness, these are common chronic medical conditions, just like hypertension and high blood pressure and diabetes or metabolic diseases are chronic medical conditions. And so uh, one of the things that we know is that the mental health system is a very large operation, and all the components are not connected. One of the things that you see as an emergency medicine doctor uh, and, and emergency providers often see patients with the most severe mental illnesses come through the doors, particularly psychotic disorders like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, or patients who have very severe depression 
to the point where they're suicidal and want to hurt themselves and have a plan to hurt themselves. Uh, and so I think there's a need to provide more acute care. We need more psychiatric hospital beds. And then we also need to do a lot more in terms of prevention, preventing patients from getting so sick that they need to be in an emergency department, having services available for patients so that they don't get to that point. I certainly feel like there's been a massive increase in the number of mental health patients that I see, but I mean, I recognize this could totally be my bias. So I want to know, is there really a crisis? And if so, why? Well, there's a few things. In the past you know, 10 years, we've had the Affordable Care Act. So many more patients in California now have Medi-Cal and so feel more comfortable coming to the emergency department for services. It's actually really good that we have more patients who have health insurance um, through the state and through Medi-Cal. You know, in California, we call it Medi-Cal. It's really Medicaid. And so one of the things we've seen is that more patients are feeling comfortable coming in for treatment, but often they're coming to emergency departments. So that's one issue. Um, the second is that over the past 10 years, we've had a population expansion and we have less psychiatric beds than we did 10 years ago. So when you combine a population expansion, just sheer more people, and then more people who have health insurance, who are encouraged to get care, and then a, a mental health system that hasn't grown fast enough. And when I say the mental health system, I include primary care in that because primary care is where a lot of patients get their mental health care, particularly patients with mild to moderate illness. So again, a, a mental health and, and healthcare system that hasn't responded to that population's needs. I also wondered if we're diagnosing more mental health because we're aware of it or if there's just something in the water. If you look at schizophrenia, for example, 1% of the world's patient population across uh, race and ethnicities, countries, has uh, schizophrenia. And so there are not indicators that that illness is going up in terms of prevalence. However, we do know that uh, suicide rates are going up in this country. And epidemiologists and healthcare delivery researchers are looking at that issue, and it's a complex issue. Deaths from suicides is now more common than motor vehicle accident deaths. We surpassed that, unfortunately, in 2009, and suicide rates keep increasing. One of the hypotheses around that is that we saw more completed suicides in this country around the time of the Great Recession. So as many Americans were losing their jobs in 2007, 2008, and then really in 2009, we started to see more Americans in this country complete suicide. And that's a real social determinant that um, doesn't always cause mental illness, but can make mental illness worse. And so I think there are a number of social factors in our region as well as in our country, that have increased reliance on emergency departments for patients who are coming in in crisis. Okay, so it is a problem, but I'm not sure I can see the solution. It feels so big. So I wanted to know more about some of the big picture solutions. The first thing I'll talk about is we need to do a better job integrating mental health into the rest of medicine. For a long time, health insurance companies have actually carved out separate health plans for patients with psychiatric illness. It's often called a, in quote, behavioral health carve-out, and that makes it really difficult. So if you're a person who's depressed, and if you have moderate or even severe depression, 
by definition, your thinking is impaired. You're not thinking as fast. You may not be that motivated to get treatment. And what we've done for years is asked patients to look at the back of their insurance card if they have insurance, call a 1-800 number to find that behavioral health carve-out, and try to find a psychiatrist or a therapist or both who's in their network. And that's quite a complex cognitive task for a person who's depressed. And so one of the things that I think uh, is, is needed, and there's a lot of evidence to support this, would be to integrate mental health systematically within primary care. And that's something that we need for patients who are privately insured and patients who are publicly insured. And right now in our region, patients with mental illness, particularly patients with Medicaid, who are here in Medi-Cal here in California, there's not really an organized mental health system that can link their primary care to their specialty mental health. Because if you have Medi-Cal in California, you're likely getting your primary care at a federally qualified health center, an FQHC, where family medicine doctors and primary care doctors, internal medicine doctors, pediatricians are working to take care of patients with chronic conditions. But if patients have mental illness and they're sick enough to see a psychiatrist, the electronic health records don't actually talk to the clinics where the psychiatrists work. And so you've got a system where you have psychiatrists and therapists working at a separate site, and there is not really a mechanism uh, that can connect the primary care doctors and the psychiatrists in a way that is systematic to deal with a complex patient population. And there's a movement to, you know, there's good evidence that if we get more mental health resources into a primary care network, patients will get better. There are evidence-based models called the collaborative care model or integrated behavioral health models. And so our, our governor is now putting more uh, value-based dollars into that system, but it's going to take significant time and resources to really integrate systematically, getting the providers where they need to be, setting up a mechanism for communication, doing appropriate screening initiatives for the common psychiatric conditions, and connecting health records. Okay, but what about at the departmental level? What can a specific emergency department do to help? When a patient comes into an emergency department in a mental health crisis, they're at their worst, right? Because usually they're having such severe depression that they're suicidal. Or if they have bipolar disorder, they have manic symptoms where they have a thought disorder or they have grandiose delusions or paranoid delusions or if they have a psychotic disorder, they, they often have paranoid delusions. They might be hearing voices telling them to hurt themselves. Patients are at their worst. And so what I think emergency departments and providers can do is recognize that. And I mean physicians, nurses, mental health workers, social workers, administrators. And what that means is doing our best to make it as patient-centered as possible in an environment that by definition is often not patient-centered. Emergency departments are are loud. They serve patients who come in and with lots of emergencies, trauma, infections, patients who need to be admitted to intensive care units, and a high percentage of patients who come to emergency departments are in a behavioral health crisis. And so what I think EDs can do is, is start to think about space and architecture and design and putting patients in places where it's more patient-centered maybe putting really high-risk patients who are suicidal not near doors and having them have constant observation from caring mental health workers, 
and for the mental health team who is rounding regularly on patients. Um, I also think it's really important to have a physician champion on the emergency medicine side. I work closely with Dr. Amy Mullen at UC Davis. You know, she has been a champion for years uh, communicating with your department about how we can provide better care for patients with mental illness. And she, as a champion, um, is a close partner with all of us. So we meet regularly to think about what our workflow is and how we can do continuous quality improvement initiatives and how we can continue to, to deal with the patient volume that we're seeing. You know, so we need to troubleshoot on a regular basis. And both of us need to have support from our bosses and from the executive leadership of the hospital. So I think that that's one thing that emergency departments can do is put champions in place to help with this really complex problem. But what can I do as an emergency physician on my next shift? I would recommend that when a patient comes in in a mental health crisis, to take a quick moment. Emergency docs don't have too many moments, but everyone has enough, a quick enough moment to say, how do I alter my approach to this patient to be patient-centered? Because like I said before, patients are coming in at their worst. If you're suicidal, if you're hearing voices, um, you've been hopeless. If you have a thought or a plan to end your life, you're pretty much at your worst. And having a caring doctor be empathic and show that they understand. They may not spend a lot of time with you and may refer you to the, the crisis social worker and the psychiatrist who will ultimately manage your care. But I think having the physician there to be empathic and understand um, and also facilitate the placement of a patient in a, in a quieter part of the emergency department that is more patient-centered goes a long way. Also, emergency medicine doctors know a fair amount about medication management, and so they also need to stay up to date from a continuing medical education perspective on how to manage acute agitation in an emergency department. You know, we try to minimize medications as much as possible and to use skills to de-escalate a complex uh, behavioral problem without medication. And so knowing when and when not to use medications, I think, is a good goal for an emergency medicine doctor. So I wanted to know, what is our role as an emergency department in the emergency psychiatric hold? So really, the, the role of the emergency medicine provider is to stabilize and triage right? Emergency departments are not psychiatric hospitals. They never will be, and they shouldn't be. Emergency departments are places where people should go in an emergency. In an ideal world, patients with mental health crises shouldn't be coming to an emergency department. However, they often do because of the impacted mental health system. There's not enough mental health hospitals. And for issues we talked about before, the mental health system is not large enough for the capacity that we're seeing. And so emergency medicine providers are really asked to stabilize, and that means getting patients to be in a safe place, right? If a, if a person has a plan to harm themselves with a firearm, or if they actually went out and bought a rope to make a noose to hang themselves, they need to be observed by medical professionals so that we can treat their illness. I think it's important for people to realize that 99% of mental health care is voluntary, it is rare to have to use involuntary psychiatric holds on patients, but for a small percent of patients who are so sick that they can't care for themselves without treatment, mental health law exists to protect patients and society so that we can provide treatment for patients who really need it. So what's the next step for these patients who are placed on a hold? 
Ideally, a patient who's on an involuntary psychiatric hold should be transferred to a psychiatric hospital. And a psychiatric hospital is a place, not an emergency department, where patients have access to an integrated team. Often it's led by a psychiatrist, working with psychologists, other health professionals like social workers and psychiatric nurses, so that patients can recover from their depression, from their bipolar manic episode or bipolar depression episode, or from their psychotic episode. Ideally, patients shouldn't be sitting in emergency departments for very long. They should be transferred to a psychiatric hospital where they can get appropriate treatment. There is this stigma that associates violence with mental health, but statistically, most patients are not violent. But I have to tell you, Sarah, it doesn't always feel like that in the ED. Remember, when we take these patients in a mental health crisis, plus or minus drugs, take away their rights, put them in a room, or God forbid, a hallway, sometimes they do get violent. I wondered what Lauren's thoughts were on this. You know, minimizing violence in the healthcare environment is so important. It's not always tied to patients with mental illness. One of the things we often see is patients who are confused or delirious may strike out at a tech or a nurse or a physician. But sometimes in in emergency departments, patients in a mental health crisis may, for a variety of reasons, become violent. And so that's where training staff on de-escalation techniques, having the appropriate staffing ratios of mental health workers to patients, training uh, emergency nurses uh, to help understand de-escalation techniques when medications are appropriate or not, and then working with the leadership of the emergency department around placement of patients. Because, uh, you know, your, your physical surroundings are so important to your comfort level. And that goes not just for patients, but for all of us. If you're having acute psychotic symptoms and hearing voices and feeling like you're being targeted, being in a room that has a lot of stimulus where it's loud is, is not ideal. It can actually exacerbate a situation. And so that's why thinking carefully about avoiding tight quarters and giving patients enough room to move around at least a little bit and being strategic is helpful. Then again, that's not always possible. Emergency departments um, have limited space. They can't expand uh, much further than their walls. And so that's one of the issues that we face. You know, I like the idea of being purposeful on the surroundings that decrease stimulus and strategically de-escalate. I just had a patient who came in intoxicated and in acute psychosis, and it took the rest of my night to get her into a safe spot. In fact, I'm not sure my sign-out was super clean on her either. I could just feel her stress, and in fact, she told me she couldn't hear me above all of the voices in her head. So I wanted to know from Lauren... How can I advocate for patients like her? I think emergency medicine doctors, uh, by definition, are signing up to be mental health practitioners. Because nowadays, if you're working in an emergency department, it is going to be a big part of what you do. And so accepting that and being patient-centered and to to know how to take care of schizophrenia, whether it's patients with schizophrenia or manic episodes or, or severe suicidal depression. And also to have an understanding that emergency departments might want to collaborate with primary care systems and advocate for a population health approach to mental health care and encouraging sound health policy to provide funding for mental health within primary care settings. 
and encouraging policymakers to provide funding to connect those siloed mental health systems with the rest of medicine. The emergency medicine doctors at UC Davis are very active in terms of health policy, and I think they have a strong voice. And so I think adding that strong voice towards sound mental health policy would be something I would recommend. I'm not going to lie. We have really struggled with this in our ED. We have so many patients in mental health crisis, and there are so few local resources. The scales are not tipped in favor of our patients or our emergency departments. So our department created the role of behavioral health director. And of course, we all know and love Dr. Amy Mullen, who I am pretty sure has been on Ian Pulse just as much as I have. <laughs> okay, maybe not that many times, but Amy is here with us today because she works closely with Lauren and our psychiatric colleagues. And as always, she has amazing insight. So I wanted to hear Amy's perspective on why things are different now. I think we have systematically underfunded our mental health care system for decades, and we're just really seeing the results of that. I think as emergency physicians, we've done what we can do for a long time, which is kind of patch and come up with workarounds for people, and we've kind of reached the end of that. Like, we've come up with all these workarounds and patched up the system like we usually do as the safety net providers, and we've really reached a tipping point where we've kind of gotten to the end of that, and there's really nowhere else for me to go. In her current role, Amy has been working to improve care of mental health patients in the emergency department. So I wanted to hear a few things that she thought we could do on a departmental level. Yeah, and I think it is part of an, a growing trend to recognize that behavioral health care is a huge part of what we do in the emergency department. We like to think of ourselves as treating cardiac emergencies, strokes, but to recognize like part of what we do is patients with substance use disorder, patients with psychiatric illness. And the concept is really to develop as best as we can a system of care for patients with behavioral health problems and to recognize like there are some unique barriers we face in terms of taking care of that patient population in our emergency department and then linking them to outpatient care, which is really kind of how I see my role in our department. The other challenge particularly for most emergency departments, unlike inpatient boarding. That's a conversation with your hospital. It's a conversation with your colleagues, but it's something that your institution, for the most part, can address. For psychiatric boarding, usually you have to go outside your institution. It's a community-wide response, and you really have to form relationships outside of your institution, and it has to be a community response, and so it's a little bit more complicated. Within our department, we started to look at different systems, how we were providing medical clearance for our mental health patients, coming up with better systems of care in terms of managing agitation in a patient-friendly manner, so early recognition and trying to use some of the other modalities to manage agitation and to provide a better environment for the patients while they're in the department. And then at the same time, trying to reach out to community providers, the inpatient psychiatric hospitals to partner with them. And really, I think the focus is on the patient. And if everybody comes together and talks about, okay, what is in the best interest of the patient? That's when we can kind of start to come together and align our priorities. So I see the vision for the department 
but I want to know what is the role of the ED doctor in patients in mental health crisis? I think the biggest thing we can do as emergency physicians is change the way we think about behavioral illness and recognize these are usually actually very life-threatening disease processes, and we have a role in early stabilization and treatment. So your teenager who's there for suicidal ideations actually has a high mortality. And to think about that as a potentially life-threatening disease process, and to think about your role in early stabilization— And if you kind of change to think about, hey, this person has an acute life-threatening disease that I can provide stabilization and treatment, it sort of changes the way you approach that patient as opposed to, oh, I have another psych patient that's going to block up my ER from the real patients. And if we kind of change and think about, no, this is my patient population and I can intervene on a life-threatening disease process on a regular person-to-person basis, I think it makes a difference. You know, when I first started here, Every single patient that came in for a mental health concern was getting a barrage of labs in the name of medical clearance. But what exactly is medical clearance? Medical clearance drives me nuts because medical clearance should be the patient was seen by a emergency medical provider who looked at the patient, did a history and physical, and determined if they had further testing that was clinically indicated or not. But because we weren't communicating with our psychiatric hospitals, medical clearance became, as you mentioned, like this whole list of labs that I had to get that I didn't think were clinically indicated. And then you would get an abnormal potassium of 3.2 that was maybe abnormal on our labs, but I had no reason to suspect that that was actually clinical relevant, was probably a lab error. So then you would have to go back and repeat it, or you would start to replace potassium that you never needed to on a patient that was eating food. So the whole process just delayed care for patients, and I think drove us all nuts. I mean, it's really hard to do something that you think is wrong, to provide what I feel like is bad medical care, which is ordering tests that are not indicated and then getting results that I never had any clinical suspicion that this was a problem. So then if I get a result that's just outside the normal range, I have no idea what to do with it. Goodness, that drives me nuts too. So what is the real purpose of medical clearance? Medical clearance is evaluating a patient to make sure that their presentation, be it, you know, someone who's acutely psychotic or depressed and suicidal, is not due to an underlying treatable medical condition. So a patient comes in delusional and psychotic due to their exacerbation of their underlying psychiatric illness, or is this really encephalitis or a seizure disorder or an intracranial lesion? And that is really what the role of medical clearance is and should be, not I walked by and ordered a CBC and Campanil and did not see any abnormalities, but to really identify, is this an underlying medical condition, or is this an exacerbation of their underlying psychiatric disorder? So clearly I was not alone in my frustration with these shotgun labs. So a few years ago, Amy developed something called smart clearance that has revolutionized how we medically clear patients. I want to know how she accomplished this. Through our local medical society, we have an emergency care committee, and it's a group of representatives from all of our local emergency departments. And within that group, we recognized and identified this is a common shared issue. And we came together as a group 
of emergency physicians and then through the medical society reached out to the medical directors of our local psychiatric hospitals and worked together to come up with a process where we all agreed on a group of patients where we did not need to send these battery of tests to medically clear, that that person would be evaluated based on their history and physical. If they met these criteria, then they could go without the extra lab tests. It was really a collaborative group effort. We did a literature review of which there's not a lot, but to look at like, okay, so what has been done um, and what criteria are out there? And then, you know, what are the specific high risk issues that psychiatrists worry about? So I actually learned from this process, one of the biggest high risk is anorexia. So a patient who's not tolerating POs is one of the biggest worries for an inpatient psychiatric hospital. That's something I learned out of this process that our psychiatry partners brought to the table. And so that is, you know, a big piece of this medical clearance. And so we kind of just developed it together. I love it. I love that collaboration. But what was the end product? What is smart clearance? I love that we found, you know, the cute name smart, but it's basically that triggers different criteria. So if you suspect new onset psychiatric illness. So This is really to identify that the 30, 40-year-old who's coming in with the new onset psychotic break, you have to take a pause and say, this patient clearly should take a second look at because you should have symptoms when you are a teenager, certainly by your 20s, should have symptoms of your psychiatric disease process. You don't have your first psychotic break at 40. And then again, that was another thought of like, if you have a new onset psychosis at the age of 40, a CBC and chem panel is not adequate. At that point, you need to do more imaging and investigation because that should be more likely to be medical than underlying psychiatric disorder at that point. And then medical illnesses. So if someone has diabetes, we should get a blood sugar on them. We check for a UPT for females of childbearing age, mostly just because I want to know, do I have one patient or two patients? It's always useful information. And then we talk about an abnormal presentation, abnormal mental status, um, abnormal vital signs. We negotiated some vital sign parameters. And then a risky presentation. So someone who was found down, there's an age cutoff that was negotiated with the inpatient psychiatric facilities. The age cutoff is pretty low. It's 55. That may or may not be the right number, but that's where we came to. And then T is therapeutic levels. This was also a concern that someone would be on something like Depakote and needed a level or someone would be on digoxin and needed a level. Although I would say to them, if someone's on digoxin, I probably can't medically clear them based on no labs. But nonetheless, those pieces are in there because they were important to our partners. I really love the smart clearance and it was cool to be there when it was rolled out. So what exactly went into implementing smart clearance? We initially started with a dot phrase that we all shared that kind of listed out in the dot phrase. So you would put dot dot ed smart and it would bring up the entire list of criteria. So that would refresh everybody's memory. They wouldn't have to memorize each thing or refer back to it. Although I did have posters in the, in the ED. And then when they would just click through yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And in the end, they would say the person is smart cleared or not. And that would go in the note. We even actually highlighted it so it would be in red. And so that when that went to any of the psychiatric facilities, they would get used to seeing it and they would say, oh, okay, this person has been smart cleared. And we also set up a process through the medical society where we would review cases. So if there was someone that one of the facilities felt like 
was sent inappropriately, they could come back to the committee, we would review and we would give feedback. In when we first rolled out, I would get text messages. This person came in, they were 56 when the cutoff was 55. And so I heard continuously and we would do continuous feedback. But it's been a couple of years now, and I think we've all gotten a lot more used to the process. Any change is hard on systems and definitely on providers, too. Amy and her team tracked the results, which really reinforced the strengths of smart clearance. First, we were checking this internally from our own institution. Were we missing people? Were people who are smart cleared decompensating and needing admission? And internally, we have not found anything. And then we decided, okay, we've actually gotten a lot of interest outside our community. We need to really investigate and see how we're doing so that we can say, is this safe? And so with the one question of, is this a safe process, we reviewed all the patients that we have smart cleared and then reviewed the sendbacks from the psychiatric facility. So did I smart clear someone, send them to an inpatient psychiatric facility, they decompensated and got sent back to the ER and were admitted. And we saw someone who was sent back, but no one who has ever been admitted to the hospital after being smart cleared. As with any new implementation, there are bound to be some growing pains. So what lessons did they learn? The biggest lesson I learned was this mythology around sending labs was because we were not talking to our partners at the psychiatric hospitals. When we sat down in a room with the ER directors and the inpatient psychiatric medical directors, we were all remarkably on the same page. And a lot of this was mythology from the frontline folks. So our social workers talking to the intake nurse at the inpatient facility and coming up with, okay, these are the requirements. And then that being communicated to us and us just doing this because we didn't have that line of communication. And once we actually started talking physician to physician, Remarkably, it was really easy to come to consensus because we'd all shared the same literature and kind of understanding of patient care. And then the other part was when we sit down and do a history and physical, we're pretty good at figuring out who needs labs and who doesn't, which I shouldn't have been surprised at but because that is really what we do, but really we're pretty good at it. You know, I started this thinking about, I am tired of sending labs on patients, tired of having to repeat labs, it's increasing the length of stay. But then to take you know, a young teenager, a young adult, and not have to traumatize that person who's maybe feeling psychotic and disempowered by the process and not having to hold them down to get labs. Pulse check. It's easy to get caught up in our own experience or the problems of our own department. But when we look beyond our hospital, we see this is a huge crisis at the county, state, and even national levels. What do we do? We need a plan. First, take a deep breath. The ED may not be the ideal spot to treat mental health crisis, but the reality is it is the only spot many patients have to go. We are it. Embrace it. Really focus on patient-centered care from the start. Place patients in an area with the least amount of stimulus possible, not near a door, with mental health techs nearby, and employ early de-escalation strategies. Second, form a team with your hospital psychiatrist. Tackle this together, not alone. Maybe you can be your department's Amy Mullen as the designated behavioral health director. You can team up with your community emergency department and psychiatric physicians like Amy did. 
Smart Clearance has absolutely revolutionized our approach to medical clearance. We are ordering tests on targeted patients, and Smart Clearance has not missed anyone yet. Finally, this isn't just happening in your ED. It is everywhere. So talk to your administrators. Connect with ASEP and other advocates to amplify your voice. Advocate to increase primary care mental health integration, like the collaborative care model that Lauren spoke about. Lawmakers need to hear our stories. We can be a voice for our patients who don't have a voice. How is the mental health crisis impacting your department? What novel things have you tried, like Amy and Lauren and some of the other Sacramento physicians? It is amazing what we can do for our patients when we collaborate across specialties. Connect with us on social media at EM Pulse Podcast and pass the word along to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate those of you who have rated us and left us reviews on iTunes. It really helps others discover us. And speaking of awesome podcasts, we recommend checking out Unfold. This is a new podcast out of UC Davis that unravels complicated problems and discusses solutions. Their first season focuses on food and examines new technologies and innovations to help feed more people while sustaining the planet. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Well, our colleagues are taking off for Hawaii very soon, but you can save the date for the 43rd annual UC Davis Emergency Medicine Winter Conference. Those dates are February 24 through 29, and it will be at the Ritz-Carlton yet again. That's in Lake Tahoe and a super amazing few days. And I'll be there for that one. So thank you to our department for collaborating to do what's best for our patients. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for keeping me sane. See y'all next time.